Welcome to Saving You is Killing Me, Loving Someone with an Addiction podcast. Loving someone with an addiction is a life of chaos. This podcast is to help you take back your power and build strength, hope, and restore peace in your life. We use the science and art of positive psychology, professionals in their field, along with personal stories of hope, resilience, and strength. We hope you can discover how the courage to focus on you can help put your life back together. When you are in a place of exhaustion, hopelessness, and emptiness, we are a community that knows all too well the turmoil that comes from loving someone with an addiction. We are here to help you compassionately struggle well. Hey there, you're listening to the Saving You Is Killing Me podcast hosted by me, Andrea Seidel. I'm the author and founder of Saving You Is Killing Me, Loving Someone With An Addiction. This podcast is for you if you're ready to find a way to struggle well, take back your power, and live life happier while you're navigating loving or losing someone to addiction. I wholeheartedly believe that when you love someone with an addiction, your life gets damaged in some way. Since we can't control someone else's addiction, but we are greatly affected by it, the number one thing you can do is take back your power and focus on you. I believe happiness, joy, and well-being is available to anyone. So the thoughts and perspectives I share here on the show are my own and those of the guests on the show. If you ever hear anything that feels harmful or triggering, I'm pre-apologizing and I'm open to being better and value any feedback and the permission to be human. That said, always take what you love, what feels good and leave the rest The conversations and tools I'll share here will give you everything you need to figure out exactly how to navigate addiction, put yourself first, and how to build resilience for your well-being in a way that feels really, really good. I use these tools to take back the power in my life to build my strength back up and restore peace. And I teach my clients how to create their own version of a life where they can tap into their power and restore their happiness. My goal is for you to listen and leave saying, why is this the only family or spouse support system that doesn't make you feel like you're the problem? And it feels so energizing, empowering, and uplifting thinking that you're not going crazy after all. I am here for you. Finally, please know you are not alone and you are worthy of prioritizing your well-being. So let's jump into the show. Hey there, Andrea Seidel here. I'm so excited because I have an amazing guest on the show. I'm a little tiny bit under the weather, so if you kind of hear me, you know, coughing or a little bit nasally, I apologize, but I really wanted to meet with this special guest here on the show, Barb Nangle. Thank you so much for being here. Oh, I'm so excited to be here. Thank you for having me, Andrea. It's so good that we can't pass germs through through meeting like this, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Through the computer. <laughs> Thank goodness. Right. So yeah. can you can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. Um, I am a boundaries coach. My business is called Higher Power Coaching and Consulting. And so I work with usually helper people like teachers, nonprofit workers, but also women entrepreneurs to help them form healthy boundaries in their personal and professional lives. Um, This comes from my own history, which I will get into in a little bit. And then I'm also a podcaster. My podcast is called Fragmented to Whole Life Lessons from 12 Step Recovery. This week was episode 183. And so I've been at it for a while and they're typically 10 to 20 minute episodes sharing what um, we call from 12 step recovery, my experience, strength and hope of recovery. So uh, I'd love to tell you about how I came up with that name too, but I'm sure we'll get into all that. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Well, tell us. Yeah. That is such a beautiful name. Fragmented to whole, because I have to say when I was in the muck and also when I was out, I was no longer with the addicted loved one in my life. 
That is mm-hmm. the description I would give myself is I felt fragmented all over the place. I felt like broken Absolutely. glass. Like I yes. was just, you know, fragmented and I lost myself and my sparkle. And I say that all the time. So mm-hmm. that is such a beautiful name for a podcast, mm-hmm. Fragmented to Whole, because literally it's about pulling all those pieces back together and, you know, kind of, and I always say like seal them or put glue them together with gold. It's like, you know, yes. when you feel broken, yeah. we kind of yeah. put it together and, and we can feel whole again but when you're in it when you're fragmented it's so hard so yeah tell us a little bit about that how you sure sure so I'll tell you about that first and then I'll tell you about my story so um I got into 12-step recovery seven and a half years ago primarily for codependence um and one of the many 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 gifts of recovery is I have this ability now to look back at my life before recovery with crystal clarity and see things that I was just completely blind to at the time. And one of the things that I can see when I look back is that I had this sense of being fragmented. Like I was a bunch of fragmented pieces floating around in space. And there was, you know, spaces between the fragments, which meant like other people's shit could leak into my territory. And the process of recovery for me was that of integration. So integrating those fragments into one coherent whole, not only did I integrate the fragments, but I got rid of the fragments that weren't authentically me. And so the way I think of it is now when things happen to me, which of course they do, because I'm a person like recovery doesn't prevent. I heard somebody say this the other day. It doesn't prevent the rain. It gives you an umbrella. Right. But I'll tell you something. I don't hit anywhere near as many rainstorms anymore as I used to. Um, but I still have all the tools of recovery that are like my umbrella for me. So when things happen to me, I, the way I think of it is I can be rocked by things that happen to me, but I can no longer be shattered by them the way that I used to because I'm no longer fragmented. I am whole. And whole things have boundaries around them. So boundaries have everything to do with me going from fragmented to whole. So when difficult things happen to me or when I get triggered, yeah, they're difficult, but I'm still whole. They don't take away from my wholeness. So that's where the name came from for the podcast. So good. So good. And I absolutely love this idea of it doesn't prevent the rain, but it gives you an umbrella. That Mm -hmm. is so powerful. And that is the basis of resilience and resilience training and everything we kind of stand for at SYKM. And Mm -hmm. I think that that is so great that you talk about that and that it's all about this integration of yourself to make yourself whole. And it's true Mm -hmm. when you feel fragmented, it's like other people's stuff can seep in and just get at you Mm -hmm. at such a deep level. So that visual is so powerful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so I know that the listeners are probably thinking, okay, how can we do that? How can we go yeah. from being fragmented to whole? How do we like seal okay. the, the space between so we can feel powerful, resilient, and strong and take back our power? Okay. So I think before I tell you all that stuff, I want to tell a little bit of my story so that you know that I know what I'm talking about. You know <laughs> yes, yes. I'm with you, right? So let me just start by saying I'm 59. I was 52 when I got into recovery and I had been in therapy since about 15, not entirely continuously, but damn close. So that's something like 37 years of therapy before recovery. Um, I got introduced to the self-help genre at about 24 and just devoured. I was like, Oh my God. And I read a gajillion self-help books. I've done, you know, physical fitness, health, nutrition, spiritual retreats, workshops, workbooks, like you name it, all the things trying to get better, be better. And all of those things sort of scratched the surface of the iceberg, whereas 12 step recovery, like melted the iceberg for me. And I really learned boundaries in recovery, but I want to tell the story of how I got into recovery. So I started volunteering for a project serving homeless people for my church. And right around that same time, this homeless guy named Dan started coming to my church as a parishioner and we became very friendly. And I sort of took it as like, oh, this is like a sign from God and delivering a homeless person to me to meet as a friend, as a person. So that when I'm working on this project, I'm not serving like 
the homeless, but they're personified for me. So we became really friendly and a couple months into our friendship, I live in New Haven, Connecticut. So there was a snowstorm and I invited him to stay in my home, which I now know not normal behavior. And he did, of course. And then he stayed another time and another time. And then within the next couple months, he was practically living with me and I felt trapped in my own home. So he was an addict and alcoholic. I think now I'm like, maybe he was a narcissist too. I'm not really sure. He wasn't actively drinking when I first met him, but he was definitely doing drugs. And I was just sort of blind to some of it for a while. And one day I was in therapy talking about him to my therapist. And in mid-sentence, I stopped and I went, oh my God, do you think I need to go to Al-Anon? And she was like, yes. So Andrea, I do not know what I put into Google, but I was looking for Al-Anon and I came up with the word codependent. And I was like, what? How is yeah. it possible with all these years of therapy, all this self-help and stuff, I've never heard this word. So I was just astonished by that. And I started going to recovery for that. And I remember saying to my therapist, listen, I do not feel like I got hit in the head with a baseball by this news that I'm codependent. I feel like I got hit in the head with a planet by this news because I'm super introspective. What the hell else don't I know about myself? And she said, you know, Barb, I think for you, (laughs) dependence is a unifying concept and it pulls together a bunch of things you did know about yourself. You just didn't realize they were connected. And when she initially said it, I thought she was kind of like saying it to be nice to me. I didn't realize like, no, it's really, really true. So I got into recovery for codependence, very quickly felt a sense of relief and also very quickly said to somebody, you know, I think I need to be reparented, but I thought I made that word up. I didn't know that that was a thing. And then (laughs) after that, I went to go visit a friend in Cape Cod who was a longtime AA member and had just raved about just the transformation in her life. So I'm telling her about my experience in recovery. And she says, let's see if we can find one of those meetings to go, you know, I'll take you. And so she couldn't, but she found another meeting that I didn't realize I qualified for. And I walked in and they said, we reparent ourselves. And I was like, what? And then they read the list of the traits of people that qualify for that program. And I about fell over. And so I bought the literature. I came home to New Haven, Connecticut, and I started going to that program as well. Um, And then I went to both of them for a year. The first one I let go because it wasn't really quite the right fit for me. But then it turns out I found out I'm a compulsive overeater. So I got into recovery for compulsive overeating as well. And I um, am now down over a hundred pounds from my top weight. I've been at my goal weight for four and a half years. We call it abstinent in that program. So I've been abstinent for six and a half years. And I honestly learned a lot about boundaries from my food program because I have boundaries around my food now. So having a food plan is a boundary. And I also had to learn how to assert my boundaries with other people around my food, because a lot of people are food pushers. A lot of people, when you're losing a lot of weight, they want to ask you all kinds of personal questions, which are none of their business. And so being in the food program also helped me in addition to the, the, uh, you know, the other recovery programs. And so I really learned how to form boundaries in a whole variety of ways from 12-step recovery. There's a lot of of boundaries built into 12-step recovery. For example, a really important one is the no crosstalk rule. And what that means is you're not allowed to comment on or ask questions about what other people share. You just let them share and you're not allowed to solve their problems is basically what that means. And I'm like, you know, recovered. I think of myself as a recovered codependent. So I was a people pleaser, people pleaser, rescuer, fixer, savior. Like I was like on the job of helping other people, whether they wanted it or not. And it wasn't just people. It was like situations and like work situations. And even like people at my organization that I had nothing to do. I was like rescuing their projects and stuff like that. So to learn, like, zip it, keep your mouth shut. You're only here for your own recovery. You're not there. And if you want to, if, if you feel the need to give someone help, you have to ask them, may I comment on your share? 
And like one of the meetings I went to, they actually read a crosstalk statement at the beginning of the meeting that said, we do not touch, hug, pat, or attempt to comfort people or give them tissues if they're crying. And I was like, oh my God, that's like so mean. And now I understand like part of the reason that we want people to stop, you know, and to comfort them is because we don't want to feel our emotions. And so we want them to stop. And so I like learning all that stuff was just like really incredible for me. And so there's so many things in 12 step recovery that went into me learning how to form healthy boundaries. And then after I got pretty good about setting boundaries, I started reading specifically about boundaries and I read a lot of good stuff, but it was all a bunch of words. And I'm a visual person. And so what I did was I started like drawing images that depicted like, what does it look like to have a boundary that's like a fence with a gate in it? And, um, you know, what happens when I have boundaries of self-protection that keep things out? And what happens when I have boundaries of self-containment that I hold things in or stop doing things? And ultimately that turned into a boundaries workbook and the foundation of my coaching that I do with people on boundaries. But I, I'll say, um, I have so many things that I'd love to say, but this is one of the most important things that I want to say that when people would say to me, okay, what happened? Barb? Like, how did you go from no boundaries to having really healthy boundaries? And when I thought about it, I was like, you know, the core of me being able to go from having no boundaries to having healthy boundaries is that I came to care more what I think of me than what other people think of me. Now, this doesn't mean I don't care at all what other people think of me. Of course I do. But I don't live and breathe by what other people think of me. So here's what I mean by that. When I was a people pleaser, rescuer, fixer, savior, I was willing to throw my own integrity out the window and say yes to things I really wanted to say no to and to say no to things that I really wanted to say yes to because I was afraid of what people would think, whether it was that they think uh, they would think I was mean or unkind or, um, you know, whatever it was. I was so focused out there. And now that I'm in 12-step recovery and I've learned to practice these principles in all my affairs and I'm an honest woman of integrity, I care so much more about being an honest woman of integrity than I do that you will like me. I want you to like me, but I don't need you to like me the way I used to. And, and here's part of the reason why, because I like me. And I like me, one, because I have integrity I, too, oh, I practice these principles in all my affairs, which is another way of having, saying I have integrity. Three, I've really gotten to know myself because the process of learning how to form healthy boundaries has to be an experimental process. You just you don't know what your boundaries are because you don't know who you are. So because it's an experimental process, you're figuring out like where is the boundary for me? Where, what are the boundaries of Barb? So I've gotten to know myself. And guess what? I like this person. I like who she is. So I like me and therefore I don't need you to like me the way I used to because I actually like me. And so the way that I think about it is I used to go to the world from a place of lack. So I was going to the world to be like, like me, like me, like me. I didn't know I was doing that, of course. Um, and so I went to the world to get, I went there to get, like liking and affirmation and validation and that sort of thing. And I was also completely drained because I was run ragged by dropping everything for me and doing for other people. So I went to the world with, from a place of lack. Now I go to the world from a place of abundance. And I mean that in a couple of different ways. One, I take super good care of myself. I have boundaries around my self-care. And so I'm not completely drained anymore. I've heard um, I, um, Ashley Kirkwood, who wrote the book, Speak Your Way to Cash, talks about you. So you don't pour from your cup, you pour from your overflow. So you have to fill your cup first so that it's overflowing. And that's what you pour from. 
So I come to the world from a place of abundance in that I'm not completely drained and I'm not going to the world to get people's approval because I already have my own. I've filled myself with love because I love myself. And so what I do is I go to the world to give. And what do I have to give? I have love to give because I've filled myself with that. So that's what I mean when I say I go to the world from a place of abundance now rather than a place of lack. So I could go on and on, but I want to <laughs> Oh my gosh, you bring up so many amazing points here. And first of all, I I just thank you so much for your vulnerability and sharing your story and just commend you on, wow, what a journey, right? Because a lot of the listeners are probably thinking, oh my gosh, I'm so codependent. I'm a saver. I'm a rescuer. I'm a people pleaser. Like I'm a fixer. And they're relating on that level. It's just like, but I don't want to be. And they're feeling that sense of fragment where, you know, people are getting other people's issues or other people's addiction are affecting them on such a deep level, which by the way, permission to be human, because that happens. And um, we're not, we're not saying we're not critiquing or um, we don't want to label you in any way if you identify with all this. But the idea here is that we want you to take back your power, right? And we want you to be able to tap into creating um, that feeling of wholeness from going from fragmented to whole and to take back your power. And one of the ways in which you did it, Barb, from what I'm hearing is exercising and boundaries and looking and really discovering through finding a fit for you. So the 12 step recovery was a great fit for you. And I love how you said that finding a fit that works well for you and then creating this idea of turning inward and, and recognizing, like, I love the way you said it's like um, boundaries of Barb, like boundaries for Barb, like you. So it's like boundaries of Andrea. It's like coming up with liking yourself enough to create these boundaries. And I love the way you you kind of compartmentalize them is like self-protection and then also mm-hmm. self-containment. So in the visual, you are mm-hmm. so good with visuals. And I say this visual too is um putting a fence around your if you put a fence in your yeah. backyard, for example, you're keeping the coyotes out. Yes. Right. But you're also preventing them from coming in. So mm-hmm. it's like I love the way you kind of say this idea about boundaries being this idea of self-protection, but also mm-hmm. self-containment, like containing right. your strength and 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 then the other piece that you bring up that's so powerful is this idea of approval. It's no longer needing the approval of the outside world. Mm-hmm. It's turning inward. It's like I do this for me because I like me and I am worthy of boundaries and I'm worthy of self-care. And Mm -hmm. you said supercharge or super good. uh, You got got really good at this idea of self-care. So like you, you offer us so many amazing, um, you know, concepts here and everything, but if there was something you could share that kind of helped the start of this process, because yeah, when we're slapped with a label like codependent or we're we're kind of identifying with the people pleasing and especially when we love someone with an addiction, it's very, very easy for boundaries to be crossed. Right. The situation isn't as, you know, uh, it's mm-hmm. quote unquote normal. It's very, it's different, bizarre right. behavior. So yeah. where do we start with that? What do we do? Yeah. So uh, I feel the need to illustrate with a story again. So um, when I first got into recovery for codependence, I remember saying to someone a few weeks in, okay, I'm starting to see that there's this continuum of helpfulness where on one end we have kindly, helpful, functional, healthy behavior. And on the other end, we have like dysfunctional, rescuing, enabling, manipulative, unhealthy behavior. I'm very clear about the two ends of that. It's in the middle where it gets murky. Like where do we cross over and go, for example, from being helpful to being rescuing or from being unhealthy to being healthy. And the woman said to me, you know, it really depends on your motives. Are you, why are you doing it? Are you doing it so they'll like you? Are you doing it to be helpful? And I was like, I'm totally doing it to be helpful. (laughs) I'm not doing it so they'll like me, but I didn't understand. And it was, I don't know how long it took, but that percolated, that question percolated for me. And I realized, oh my goodness, I really am doing it so they'll like me. And it's not even necessarily that they'll like me. It's so that they will think good things of me. So they will think that I am helpful, that I am kind, that I am generous. I am nice. I used to think I was nice. Well, here's the thing. It is not nice 
to say yes when you mean no. That's called dishonest. And it is not nice to manipulate people, which is what you're doing when your behavior has the end goal of they will think X, Y, Z of me. So when I learned that people pleasing was manipulative and dishonest, I was like, oh my God, I'm a horrible person. And here's the thing. You're not a horrible person. You're someone who has developed patterns from somewhere that at some point in time helped you. So I happened to grow up in a dysfunctional family. These patterns were developed in my childhood when I didn't know how to do anything else. But the thing about having boundaries is you have choices. If you're a people pleaser, rescuer, fixer, if you're anything like I was, it is a compulsion. It is not something you are choosing to do. You feel like you have to do it and you must do it. And the process of learning how to have healthy boundaries is learning how and when and where to make choices. Because to me, the definition of a boundary is a standard that you have for your life. Hopefully you're living up to them and it's a process to learn how to live up to them. And then the part that most people think about when it comes to boundaries is the part where you tell other people, these are my standards, but there's way more work to be done before you communicate them to people. You have to figure out what they are. So from that woman asking me the question, why are you doing it? That led me to one of my most important questions that I ask myself when deciding what's healthy for me. Is this the right boundary for me? And it's this, what are my motives? What am I trying to accomplish here? Am I trying to manipulate someone? Am I trying to control someone into doing something that I want them to do, whether it's like me or stop drinking or stop gambling or whatever it is? Or am I trying to be the best person that I can be? And another question that I ask myself that I've learned from recovery is, does this serve me? And when I say, does this serve me? I mean, does this serve my highest good? So you know, I mentioned my business is called Higher Power Coaching and Consulting. That's because I am higher powered. I was always a spiritual person before I got into recovery, but my spirituality absolutely exploded after that. I happen to call my higher power God. So when I say, does this serve me? What I mean is, would God be proud of me if I was doing this thing? So what are my motives? And does this serve me? So those questions will help guide you like when and where is the right boundary to set. Now, I'll tell you, when I started setting boundaries, I was blessed to be in a small group of women that were doing the steps together. So I had these women who I now think of them as boundary buddies. I don't, I think it probably was two years before I ever realized the importance of working on boundaries with other people. Because I needed people to sometimes literally and sometimes metaphorically hold my hand through the process and say, you are not a bad person. You deserve to set this boundary. It is okay. And so I'll tell you, the the first time that I remember setting a boundary, I really don't remember what it was, Andrea, but I was like this. Wham! Ooh, ooh, that was way too harsh. Now, if I had known that it was going to be too harsh, I would not have set that boundary. The only way that I knew it was too harsh was what it felt like to do it. So in other words, I had to experiment because I had never set boundaries before. I was like, oh, I don't know how to do this. Now, if I had given up and been like, oh my God, I'm horrible about boundaries, where would I be today? Right? I'm, you know, I've been coaching client after client after client. And not only do I have healthy boundaries and I teach the people around me how to treat me, I teach other people. So you you have to be willing to make mistakes and to to experiment through the process. And then it's so funny first, because when I'm listening to you speak too, it's almost like when you're when you love someone with an addiction and, and I did do a boundary that was felt really harsh too, like that. I said, well, if you can't come home before one o'clock, then don't come home at all. Like I hadn't thought through that boundary, but mm-hmm. I was like, 
you know, and so then after I was like, so then he started not coming home. I'm like, oh, shoot, that's not really what I wanted. And also a lot of the times I would think in my head, like, do I really need to be establishing boundaries on what I think in my brain is common sense, like how you would treat someone or someone that you love? Like, you know, like, so when you love someone with an addiction, it's the most bizarre situation you find yourself in. But Mm -hmm. I think that your need for these boundaries and these standards for yourself, we need to turn up the volume on them because Mm -hmm. it is, you know, otherwise we just get swallowed up. Right. And, you know, when you just said turning up the volume on them, what, what that meant to me when I heard you say that was I started caring more and more and more what I thought about myself. So I will tell you, I have always had a high self-esteem. I've never had low self-esteem. But what I know now is I had low self-worth. When I look at my behavior over the literally dozens of dysfunctional relationships, romantic relationships that I've had, that is not the behavior of someone who was felt worthy, right? And I actually, because I just mentioned relationships, I want to tell you, I am now, I just celebrated four years with my sweetheart. I am in a super healthy, loving, amazing, intimate relationship for the first time in my entire life. After dozens literally of dysfunctional relationships. So it's never too late. You can turn the ship around. Um, but what I took that to mean when you said that was growing to care more and more about yourself, because one of my friends in recovery said this and I loved it. She's like, you don't put a fence around property you don't care about. So if you had a run down lot with a shack that was falling apart, you wouldn't put a fence around it. But if you put time and energy and effort and money into fixing up that shack, you'd be much more likely to put a fence around it. So when you start taking care of yourself, it's going to be easier to set boundaries. And what I found was the process of learning to set boundaries was how I came to care more about myself. So the first time I set a boundary, I'm like, ooh, that felt really good to do that. I feel good about I showed up for myself. I had my own back. So I feel like pumped from that, right? Well, then because I feel pumped, I feel better about myself. And then the next boundary is easier to set. And then I feel even better than the next one and the next one and the next one. So that to me, that's how the process works. You have to start somewhere. And then what I remember doing in this this group with with the small group with women is um, I had like eight or nine months before recovery broken off a five-year super codependent relationship with a man. And he would still message me from time to time. And so when I was um, working with these women, I didn't know that if I am at work and I go into my personal email for some reason, and there's an email from him that I don't have to open it. Like, like I was so codependent that I felt compelled to open an email from my ex. Okay. So they helped me to understand actually, Barb, you don't have to open the email. You can wait. And the way I think of it is I waited until I had the psychic space to open it. And then what I learned was even when I open it, I don't have to reply immediately. That's a boundary. And then I learned, I don't have to send a seven page long reply. I can reply in a couple sentences. And then eventually I learned I could actually delete them. So I eventually texted him and said, listen, I wish you all the best, but I'm not interested in a relationship. And then I just stopped responding to him after that. It took me probably two years before it even occurred to me to block him Like that is like the process of even understanding that it is okay. Not not just that it's okay, that it's an option to not open an email, to not respond right away, to not respond at length, to not open, to block. Like it took me in phases to do that. So like being patient with yourself and doing the best that you can in the moment that you have. And and here's, this is a concept I learned from recovery that's been super helpful for me. When you see this behavior about yourself and you decide I'm not going to do it and then you do it anyway, this is info, not ammo. This is information for you to learn about yourself 
and to integrate and grow from. It is not information, excuse me, it is not ammunition to beat yourself up. It's info, not ammo. And that changed everything for me because even though I had high self-esteem, I always had this low self-worth and I realized from recovery, I was basically looking around for reasons to beat the crap out of myself all the time. That doesn't work. It's If it worked, I would be amazing. I would have have needed recovery, right? Well, I think you raise such a good point here too. I just don't want to lose the thoughts because they're so good. You brought up this idea of it's an option. I love the way you say that the boundaries are literally about recognizing that we have choices and we have options here. So we don't have to say yes to something or we don't have to tolerate that, you know, that whatever is going on that it's really about. And, and, and I love the way you said it too. It's a practice. Like you get better and better at it and it's so empowering. And then the thing is, is like, what comes first? It's like when we start practice being boundaries, we're almost honoring our self-worth, but then it's like, it, we need to have this self-worth in order to practice boundaries and So I really would love to just talk for a second because I know in positive psychology, we talk about the difference between self-esteem and self-worth. And I love the way you put it. It's almost like this concept of self-esteem being what we think and feel or believe about ourselves. But then this idea of self-worth being, it's like a recognition that we are a valuable human being and that we have value and that Mm -hmm. we bring value and that we're worthy of love. And your metaphor of that beautiful home and, you know, putting a beautiful fence and perhaps a gate around it because you value what's inside there so much. That is such a good metaphor. So, so many little nuggets I didn't want to lose there that you brought up that were so powerful. Um, Which I think what brings me to a question is maybe do you have any examples of you bring up those two dynamics of self-protection and Mm self-containment? Can you give us some examples of some boundaries in there? Yeah, absolutely. So for me personally, boundaries of self-containment were the thing that changed things the most for me. So a really good example for me of a boundary of self-containment is gossip. So I did not know until I got into recovery that I gossiped. I didn't understand that talking negatively about my boss behind her back for 19 years was gossip, which is kind of hilarious because that's sort of the definition of gossip. And so a big, like I had to do a lot of work to stop gossiping. But when I contain that, I stop spreading chaos because when, what I found, let me just continue the work situation. I worked there for 19 years. I was there longer than everybody else. I was more senior than everybody but the boss. So I created a culture of expectation that we don't go to her and say, listen, this isn't really working. We stand around and complain about her behind her back. We focus on problems, not solutions. We blame her. We don't take any ownership. So I created this culture of expectation that we're just going to focus on the problems and bitch about her and there's nothing we can do about it. And I created um, like a reputation for myself as someone who doesn't solve problems, someone who focuses on that. And I it just like created a lot of chaos. And so um, when I contained that and stopped gossiping, I learned so many things. Number one, my resentment against her went down by like 90%. Because if let's say she did stuff that was annoying, okay? But when I talked about it over and over and over again, to person after person after person, year after year after year, I blew that, I gave a small thing a big shadow. I made it seem way worse than it was. So I learned through doing that to stop dragging stories with me, whether it was gossip or whether it was something negative that happened to me. I didn't tell everybody and their brother about, can you believe this shit? Can you believe what happened to me? Blah, 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 blah. Like, let's say something traumatic happened to me. Well, if I talk about it over and over and over again, that I'm re-traumatizing myself. What I learned instead was to process negative things. In other words, try to come to a resolution. So now if I have difficulty with another person, I pick a safe, emotionally healthy other person like my sponsor and say, this is the situation. How do I deal with it in a healthy way? And if I can't resolve it, and you know, after that first conversation, then I go back to that same person to contain it, not to spread it around like gossip. 
And if I still can't find resolution with that one safe, healthy other person, then I pick another safe and healthy other person and say, listen, I could really use your perspective. So that's what I mean by containment. I also mean containing things like negative self-talk. As soon as I realize I'm beating the crap out of myself, I turn that around. And then boundaries of self-protection. These are the boundaries that most people are thinking about when they talk about boundaries. So this is keeping bad stuff out, keeping the coyote out, right? Oh, you know what? Actually, when I just said that, when you said that earlier, you're not just keeping the coyote out. You're keeping your dog and your cat in. You're keeping the good things in. So boundaries of self-containment can also be holding on to your good energy, holding on to your belief. I am a good and decent, worthy person. Even if somebody is telling you, horrendous things about yourself so then boundaries of self-protection they're like you know the, the the you're protecting yourself from the bad stuff coming in you're protecting like for me i stay away from chaotic environments i used to run towards chaotic environments because i was going to fix and rescue and save that stuff i stay away from you know addicts and alcoholics except for of course when i'm in meetings and i'm going to meetings with them but i don't date people like that if somebody, like I have a sponsee right now who is trying, like everything that he's telling me is the woman that he's dating is headed down the path of an alcoholic. Her mother's an alcoholic. Her father's an alcoholic. She drinks to get drunk and has, has hangovers, but only once a month. And I'm like, I only know what you're telling me. But like, if that was me dating someone doing that, I would cut it off at this point in my life. Whereas in the past, I always expanded my capacity to tolerate dysfunction. And I'll tell you something, Andrea, I have a very high tolerance for dysfunction. But what I know now is I don't have to live up to that tolerance. I have boundaries. I'm like, you know what, this is where the line is. Like if you if you drink socially and have a drink from time to time, fine. But if every time I see you drinking, you were drinking to get drunk, I'm not dating you. So that's a boundary of self-protection. So good. And you know what? And that's, I just read the book, The Power of Regret, and I just featured it actually on the podcast and how regret actually has this wonderful catalyst for positive change. And I remember thinking one of my regrets is, um, you know, not seeing the signs. And and so, and then the idea is you take that regret as a learning and growth opportunity. So then it's like, okay, well, how can I use this to set boundaries for the future? In the future, I will. And Mm -hmm. then it's amazing because that's exactly it. I will only date people that have good self-regulation and that, you know, and and none of that, I don't want the drama anymore. I don't want the chaos anymore. So like I, you're so right. Like just this self-protection piece is huge. And I love the self-containment and that you brought up this idea of putting limits on even the amount of time that we're in that chaos or putting limits Mm -hmm. in the, you know, Mm -hmm. um, the inner critic that comes up. So, so those two elements are so beautiful. I know you probably have more self-protection examples. Yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, people, like, I think the number one myth that I hear about boundaries is people think boundaries are for other people and they think that they can control other people and stop them from doing stuff. You cannot go through the rest of your life and never be triggered again by things that other people do. You can minimize opportunities for being triggered by not going to the lion's den. You can minimize the amount that people trigger you, not by turning them into different people, but by limiting the amount of exposure you have them. So my brother's a really good example. He is a dry drunk, an untreated adult child who has serious mental health problems and is not, he know like he was in AA for like two years in his early twenties and just left. So he's been sober for many years, but he is not like emotionally sober. And so when I started setting boundaries, I would say to him, listen, I don't want to talk about politics. And he's a really super loud talker. And I'd be like, listen, you know, my ears hurt. And I, what I realized was those aren't boundaries. Those are me trying to control him and turn him into a quiet talker who doesn't talk about politics. Well, he's not capable of those things. So what do I do? What are my boundaries? My boundaries are I spend very little time with him. 
I started with, let's try 90 minutes. That's too long. Then I went down to 60 minutes. Like my, I can do like 59 minutes with my brother. And I also spend much less time with him, not just the amount of time, but less frequently. Now I will say, I actually haven't seen him since the shutdown at the beginning of the pandemic. And I haven't heard from him. I sent him a card, never got a response, haven't heard from him since and have not made any overtures. But during the course of my recovery, I had to shorten the amount of time over time. And then it was fewer and farther between because I can't, it dysregulates my system to be in the same room with him. And so to protect myself, again, I can't turn him into a quiet talker who doesn't talk politics, but I can control myself by putting up this boundary of self-protection in that there's a limited amount of time. Oh, I love that you brought that up. That's exactly because a lot of times we think that if boundaries are like, you can't do drugs. <laughs> right. Yeah. No. You, you're not allowed to go to the the um, gambling casino anymore. Like, right. So boundaries right. that's are not a boundary. That's, that's a not wish. a boundary. Yeah, that's a wish right? Right, and a hope. Um, so I think that, yeah, casting it on to other people, you raise such a good point here. So boundaries are 100% for ourselves. They're yes. not for anyone else. It's basically defining what it is that you want, that, that, that is, you know, that you want, what is comfortable for you, yeah. what you desire. It's yes. you, how you want to be treated by others. So boundaries mm-hmm. are for you 100%. I love that you brought that up. It's right. a really good point. Yeah. And if somebody is incapable of treating you in a way that meets your standards, this is where the serenity prayer comes in. Okay. So accept the things you cannot change, Accept this person is incapable of changing and then courage to change the things you can. Well, either I'm going to change my standards, which personally I'm not, or I'm going to change my behavior such that I'm not exposed to that. And the wisdom to know the difference to me, the wisdom to know the difference is where's the boundary. Like to me, this writing prayer is literally all about boundaries. Mm-hmm. What can I change? What's inside my boundary, inside my hula hoop, inside my fence, right? Me, my thoughts, my behaviors, my actions, my beliefs. And what are the things I need to accept? Everything outside my boundary, right? So you may not want to accept this person is an addict and an alcoholic and they have an illness and there's nothing I can do about it. But if you don't accept it, you will never have the serenity that the prayer is talking about. You can still have serenity even when they're drinking, because when you start forming healthy boundaries, you will really get on an emotional and visceral level. It's not happening to me. It doesn't mean you don't care about them anymore, but you stop caring more about them than you care about yourself because You know, the whole thing that happens when you get in an airplane and they say, if the mask drops down, you put it on yourself first, because if you're passed out, you can't help them. Right. And so when you are bending over backwards, killing yourself for this other person that you love, two people are being taken down by their drug or alcohol problem, them and you. Yes. They're the one that has the addiction. You're not, well, you do have an addiction. It's called codependence, but you can actually stop from that. I feel like, I think I said earlier, like I am a recovered codependent. I still have those tendencies. I just don't act on them anymore. And speaking of those tendencies, one of the things that I like to tell my clients is you can learn to leverage your codependent powers for good. In other words, if you really care so much about what other people think, use those people as your accountability partners. And so do things like say, hey, I am not going to go pick him up when he calls me drunk from the bar. And I'm going to call you when he calls me or I'm going to call you tomorrow morning to let you know I didn't do it. So you're taking your tendency to want to please other people, to want to have someone outside you be more important than you and using it to stop you from being codependent. So that's what I call leveraging your codependent powers. That's good. 
Get an accountability partner. Yes. Yes. <laughs> and you want to please that accountability partner. So right. That's, right. I like that psychological little spin yeah. there. Yeah. So I'm curious with this idea, like, let's think of maybe, is there an exercise or an actionable nugget that maybe people can start writing down? Like, what would some self-protection boundaries be for me? Or what would some of this self-containment, these boundaries be for me? How can I go from feeling, you know, shattered and how do I become whole? Are there any exercises or any actionable nuggets you could suggest? Yeah. I mean, what, what I do is, um, I mean, I can actually send you a worksheet that I don't know if you can like share with people that has like my visual for that and like walks people through that. So I'm happy to do that. It's kind of hard to describe the visual things on an audio program, but, um, I do have worksheets where I give examples of my own boundaries of self-containment and self-protection and then give like space for people to write their own in, you know, after using my suggestion, I do want to also say something about the boundaries of self-containment that I've realized over time that some of those things I need to contain are things that only affect me. So for example, my negative self-talk, other people don't even know that I'm doing it and it doesn't harm them. Right. But it harms me. But then there's other boundaries of self-containment like gossip that not only affect me, but also other people. So like thinking about those two different kinds of, of self-containment boundaries, you know, I think is important. Um, so would that be helpful if I sent you the worksheet and then I yeah, don't know if you can of course. Um, upload think- it with the podcast or something or... Yeah, of course. I'm going to put all your links in the show notes and everything. I was just more if there was like, you know, for me, I'm all about like, um, if there's like one thing to get started for them, I think also just having that visual of that special, beautiful home. And you are that special, beautiful home that's worthy of so much love and care. And for the listener, like, I just want them to know that. And um, that sometimes you feel, you know, you're, you feel knocked down when you're in the muck or even when you're out of it, it's, you still have, you, you've been affected by someone else's addiction. So this mm-hmm. idea of building that beautiful fortress of yourself and taking back your power, I love that visual. And then recognizing that you're worthy of boundaries. You're worthy of building the fence around yourself. You're worthy yeah. of that. And I just love this idea of like, what, what would help you feel protected or what mm-hmm. would, what, what is it that you value? This is one exercise I have in my book that I, that's tangible. They could do right away is make a list of everything that you value. So you think about, I value being respected or I value, you know, family time or, and then as soon as you kind of tap into those values, I find that that helps you create boundaries. It helps you. Because if you know that you value this and that's what makes you what you so value, it's like when that line gets crossed, it's very triggering and your needs are not met. So it's almost like that's a nice little hint or it's almost like a glimpse into how to start formulating your boundaries or what's important to you. It's a simple writing down. Yeah, that's where I start with my clients. I have them identify their top five values and we work with that through the whole time that I'm coaching with them. Because that's how you know when and where to set the boundaries. What's important to you? Yes, so that's if right. You say, if you say my family is really important to me, but you never spend time with them or you're on the phone or you're at your kid's game and you're like scrolling your phone or, you know, you're taking work calls and emails over the weekend, then you're not in integrity with your value of family. So then you need to set boundaries in such a way that you feel that you are actually valuing your family, but you get to decide what that looks like. So maybe for you, it's, you know, after 7 p.m., I don't take work calls or text messages. And on Sundays, I don't, you know, or when I go to the soccer game, the phone stays in the car. Like you get to decide. Maybe that's not, maybe those aren't the right boundaries for you, for your family, if family is the most important for you. They're very personal, you know, there's oh, um, so true. I love that you brought that up. And I know, I know that values piece really helps a lot of yeah, my clients as well. Core, absolutely. And I love that you brought that up. It's like, um, this idea too, is a really clue when your boundaries have been crossed. So sometimes people don't even realize their boundaries are being crossed. Mm-hmm. And, um, a clue I always say to my clients is this idea of when you know, you, you've planned one thing and then it, the plans have changed, or you like have something, you know, set and 
stone and then it changes, then you know your boundaries have been crossed. It's like, it's a little clue, right? Also your feelings, like tune into those feelings when things don't yes. feel right, right? Right, yeah. It's so important for that self-awareness piece. I yeah, think. yeah, feelings are key and they're key not only to finding out like was my boundary crossed, but learning to deal with the guilt and shame of setting boundaries is one of the most important parts of being able to set boundaries because we feel guilty and shamed as if we are not supposed to set boundaries, like we're a bad person. And so one thing that really helps with that is this notion of there's a difference between harming someone and hurting someone. And so it might hurt someone it might hurt someone's feelings if you set a boundary with them, but it's not going to harm them. So here's a metaphor everybody can identify with. It might hurt you to use a needle to take a splinter out of your finger, but it doesn't harm you. In fact, it heals you. Well, it might hurt someone's feelings to set a boundary with them, but it's not going to harm them. In fact, it might actually heal the relationship because you are being real and authentic with them. At minimum, it's going to heal you because you're taking care of you. You're showing up for yourself. You're having your own back. You're building your own integrity and your own self-worth. So true. Oh my gosh. Yes. Okay. So when we first started talking, we talked about this idea of feeling fragmented and almost like the addict in our life kind of getting interwoven in between all our pieces and we're broken and shattered. It doesn't feel good. And that one of the amazing things that we can do is exercise this idea of boundary so that we can start making ourselves whole, but tapping Mm -hmm. into our self-worth. I love that you bring this piece too, because self-worth kind of helps bring about more boundaries, but at the same time, boundaries helps build our self-worth. So it kind of goes hand in hand. So I always say like, just keep practicing. And just like to your point, it's like this idea of going to a place that know your worthiness for it, know what you value. And then it's slowly knowing that you have the right and the worthiness to take good care of yourself and prioritize your well-being. Mm -hmm. And then that, that is always our constant message too here in the SYKM that you are are a priority to prioritize your well-being because we might get damaged and affected by someone else's addiction, but it's so essential for us to take back our power when we feel broken and shattered. And I love the way and putting all those pieces together with gold and just building that again, we can't stop the rain, but we can build our umbrella, which is that piece. So you bring up so many amazing suggestions all around boundaries in terms of Mm -hmm. self-protection, self-containment. And so if there was one last thing that you wanted the listeners to know, what would it be? Um, It's keep the focus on yourself. I I think, you know, codependency at at its, um, you know, in general is focus outside of self, whether it is, you know, for validation or what's happening out there or whatever. So keep the focus on yourself. And I mean that in four different ways. One Focus on meet needs. What do I want or need in this situation? I never asked that before. Number two, it's my being my own business. I used to give unsolicited advice to people all the time, especially about relationships, by the way, even though I never had a healthy one. So if somebody wants your help or advice, let them ask for it. If you really feel the need to be helpful, ask them, may I help you or may I give you advice? Number three, This for me was the greatest gift of recovery was looking for my part in things. What is it that you're doing? Because you're the only one you can control in a situation. What is it that you're contributing to the situation? What could you do differently in the future? And then the fourth way of keeping the focus on yourself is take really good care of yourself. I neglected myself physically, emotionally, spiritually, financially, psychologically, relationally, you know, like you wouldn't believe. And so now I take super good care of myself. Oh my gosh. These are so good. So again, keeping the focus on you and doing that through like, what do I want? What are my needs? And also minding your own business is kind of like Mm -hmm. focusing back on yourself and what you have control over. And then also this idea of looking at your own part in this and like how you can take back your own power and focus on you. Mm -hmm. And then this idea of take good care of yourself, like absolutely good care of yourself. Oh my gosh. Amazing. So focusing Yay! on you. Yeah. Me, myself and I, not selfish. Yes. <laughs> right. And self-care is not selfish. It's no. self-preservation. 
It's self-preservation. Because when you take care of you, you're not waiting for other people to take care of you. You're taken care of. And then you have so much more to give. And I I, want to say one last thing, Andrea, and that is I called myself a volunteeraholic before recovery. I bent over backwards. I I had a section this long on my resume of of volunteer things. (laughs) And now I give way more service to my community now that I have healthy boundaries than I ever did before. Because I do it on my terms, I set aside time for it. I don't just take all requests for help. I decide where and when, which for me mostly is in recovery. I give a lot of service in recovery because it strengthens my recovery. And I want those programs to be available for other people when they are like me and come along and need something to take care of them. So just because you have healthy boundaries doesn't mean you're not going to be kind and helpful to other people. It means you're going to do it by choice and from a place of abundance. Oh, I love that. Yay. Oh my gosh, Barb. I'm so thankful for everything that you're doing. You are making a difference and you are being of service to so many people. And so are you. Oh my uh, goodness. Yes. Thank you. But I'm so grateful for you being on the show and sharing your wisdom, knowledge and support and vulnerability and expertise and everything. And um, I'm sure we'll have you back on and we can talk all about all kinds of other things as well. And um, thank you so much. And I will put all the links for your website and everything that you're doing in the show notes. So thank you so much. Oh, you're welcome. All right. Bye, everybody. Thank you for listening. If you want additional support, you can head on over to our website at savingyouiskillingme.com, where we have a wonderful, supportive, compassionate community. We are here for you. You are not alone. We also have a private Facebook group and Instagram feed called Saving You Is Killing Me, Loving Someone With An Addiction. Be sure to subscribe here so you get the latest episodes. And of course, share this with your community and your support groups or anyone that's going through this struggle so we can all work together to take our lives back and restore joy. Thank you so much for joining me, not only today, but week after week. Although I wish we were meeting under different circumstances, I'm so grateful that I get to show up for you and share these episodes so that we can go on this journey together. Until next week, sending hugs.